When the NWO destroys Hey, hey, yo, what is up, everybody, friends, fellow wisdom seekers, fellow truth seekers? Welcome to the Brave New World Order podcast. Straight out the catacombs of podcasting, I am Brandon Saint One. I want to thank everybody for joining me for this episode as we continue our journey into the Colbrin Bible. This is the final three chapters from the Book of Creation, which is part of the Egyptian collection, which makes up the first six books of the Colbrin Bible. So this is just one part of a very massive collection of manuscripts. So if you haven't, definitely go back and check out my previous episode on the Cobrin Bible, the first one that I did, before I started reading the actual texts, I went through what the Cobrin Bible is, where it came from, how it survived, how the two collections, the Egyptian and the Celtic manuscripts were merged together. So go back, check that out if you really want to know where this all comes from. These episodes that I'm doing are just going to be the whole Cobrin Bible. So I hope you all enjoy it. Thank you all so much for coming along with me on this journey. That's what it is all about. Let's get to the goods. This is the Colbrin Bible, chapters 6, 7, and 8. Let's swan dive headfirst into the abyss. The Colbrin Bible, chapter 6. Datum and Lewid. Maeva fled for her life, and many kinfolk went with her. But Datum was unable to follow, being laid low with the sickness. This loosened his tongue, so it became uncontrollable, making him babble like a child. And the sickness covered his body with red sores, from which came an issue. Lewid also departed for a place far out in the wilderness. Those with Datum who looked back towards the place of the garden, saw bright tongues of light licking the sky above it, the whole being interwoven with flickering flames in many hues. Those who sought to return were repulsed with a tingling ache over their bodies, which increased into severe pain as they approached, so they were driven away. When Datum recovered so he could stand, only a few remained with him, and they all moved further into the wilderness to a place where there was water and pasture. There, Datum left Herthu, his son, and the boy's mother, with Habaris the learned, and set out to find Luid. After many days, Datum and those with him came upon Luid and his yoslings, those who were full of sickness, and slew many, but Luid was not slain though mortally wounded, and he lay against a great rock. When Datum came near, Luid raised an arm heavily and said, Hail to the victor and benefactor who has come to terminate our wretchedness. While Datum stood sternly contemplating him, Luid said, To kill me now is your prerogative, 
for even we lesser beings who are far removed from godmen have the law of husbandly pride. What I did has been done before and will be done again, but I erred by crossing an unknown barrier which could not be discerned, for we within ourselves are no more contagious to each other than are your people. If I then must die, let it be for my part in spawning the canker worms of disease which have stricken both our peoples. Back in the dreaming time, when the great gods strove among themselves for dominion of the sky spaces and the wide expanse of earth was rent apart by unearthly wildfire, Bimotha was cut apart by the bright arrows of Shimas. Then this land was given to my people as their dominion, while yours was in another unearthly place far distant. Our domain was a pleasant place, and though you teach that because of this we remained as we are, yet we were content. We know of no great design, nor of any barely attainable objectives to which men must aspire. Such striving, as you know, is to us no more than purposeless vexation. I have my God, and you have yours. And as they strove one against the other before times, so will it always be. But now there is a new battleground with new battle chiefs. I will go to my appointed place, and you will go to yours. And from thence, as leaders of the fray, we shall wage a never-ceasing war. Such is fated and must be. But who will win the fair prize of earth for their king? We shall not strive with clubs and lances, the hurling stone and flying dart, but with more subtle weaponry. This thing is not our choice. We are but playthings of fate. That you and I should head the fray is not because of our qualities, but because we were where we were when we were. Now we are but two precarious points of life in a hostile wilderness, but what might we be in a hundred generations? Datum said, These things I know too, for my eyes have always been opened. I too have looked out into an endless plain without any horizon, but I shall lead those who have grown strong through seeking and striving, while those in your ranks will be weakened through indulgence in the flesh pots of pleasure places on earth. We are the disinherited, but not the disowned. We have the seeds of victory within us. You and yours were never more than you are, sons of the easy path, followers of the downhill road. Then, when these things had been spoken, Luid died, and Datum and those with him burnt his body. Datum and those with him wandered the wasteland for many days, then turned southward towards the mountain. Then it happened that one day, Datum was seated apart in solitude among rocks, with chin on chest, and a hunter of the Ubalites came upon him from behind. The hunter slung a smooth stone as the man turned, 
and it struck out his eye. Then the Ubalite slew him by smashing in his head with a stone. This hunter was the son of Ankadur, son of Inanari, king of the Ubalites, by Urkala, daughter of the Chazites. This is known because those who were with Datum came out of the barren places and learned the ways of builders, becoming great among the Ubalites and raising cities along the rivers. Among them was Enkigal, who built Kerador, which stands between the two great rivers, and Natar and Balet-Shuramam, who taught men the ways of writing, setting the letters upon a pillar in Harak. Chapter 7 Herthu, Son of the First Father The Book of Beginnings tells us all things began with Barkhelfa, therein called Awin Khalifa, from whom flows Gwynin, the energizer which stabilizes all things so they maintain their proper form and Awin, which responds to the molding desires. This is well enough, but men concern themselves more with the beginnings of their race, and ours is rooted in Herthu the sun-faced, son of the first father. While Herthu was still young, he was expelled from the lush lands where he was born, and he journeyed across the harsh lands in the company and keeping of wise Habaris. After many days, they came to Kraukasis, cradle land of our race, land of mountains and rivers, which is beside Ardis, and they encamped there in the valley. With them were retainers and flocks. Herthu grew to manhood there, and always Habaris was at his side, instructing him in all the things he should know. He taught Herthu the nine essential disciplines of Emain and the secrets of the three sacred vessels. Herthu learned that there was a place of gloom where the air was foul and the malodorous breezes carried pestilence and poisonous particles. This was the source of all maladies and ailments and of the things which cause putrefaction and decay. This place had been closed off from earth for it existed in another realm beyond the ken of mortals. But it had been brought into attunement with earth when a forbidden act was accomplished. Thus, the bodies of mortals became susceptible to influences from the baleful place. To this, and similar parts of the other world, the wicked would be drawn when they passed through the grim gates of death. But Habaris taught a different conception of wickedness, one where lack of effort indolence, and indifference to duty and obligations, the taking of the easy path, were just as wrong as actual deeds of wickedness. He taught that men reach the true goal of life by transmuting lust love into true love. That true victory is gained only over the defeated bodies of their vanquished passions and baser selves. These and many other things were taught by Habaris, 
but many of his teachings displeased the people of Crocasus, who were then as they were before Herthu's forefather was led away. So Habaris concealed many things from them, and taught, by simple tales, things within their understanding. He taught them the mysteries concerning the wheel of the year, and divided the year into a summer half and a winter half. With a great year circle of fifty-two years, a hundred and four of which was the circle of the destroyer, he gave them the laws of weal and woe, and established the folk feasts of harvest tide and seeding tide. He taught them the ritual of Ulysidui, but Habaris instructed Herthu in the ways of the other world. He taught him concerning the three rays from the central invisible sun, which manifest all things, upholding them in stability and form. Also, concerning the Oversoul, which filled everything in creation, as the soul self filled the mortal body, this soul self, he declared, would develop from mortal sensitivity and feeling transmuted into divine sensitivity and feeling through suppression of the baser instincts within mortals. It was strengthened by development of feelings of love between man and woman and between these and their kindred by the appreciation of beauty and devotion to duty by the development of all qualities that pertain to humans and not to animals. Herthu learned that the soul self is quickened by soul substances outflowing from the Godhead, that the strong soul is transformed and molded to the soul's desire, but the weak soul is not its own master. It is flabby, unstable, and is pulled into a state of distortion by its own vices. In the afterlife, there is unbounded joy for the entry of a noble soul. It will glow with splendor and stand out proudly. The mean soul of the wicked is dull-hued, twisted, and drab, and, being drawn towards its own compatible state, it shrinks into the dark places. When Herthu had barely crossed the threshold of manhood, black-bearded spearmen began to ravish the borders of Crocasus, and Idalvar, king of that country, called his fighting men together, and when word came to Herthu, he prepared to depart. But Havaris bid him stay a while, for he was unprepared for battle. Then Havaris prepared a strange fire with stones, unlike any fire seen before, and when it burnt low, he plucked out that which is called Child of the Green Flame, and he beat it out so it became a blade. This he fitted to a horned hand grip, and when it was edged and blooded, gave it to Herthu, saying, Behold, Dislana, the Bitter Biter, faithful servant of he who strikes hard and true. Then he made a shield of wicker, covered with oxhide and a cap of hide, which came down over the face and neck. So equipped, Herthu 
went to the encampment of Idalvar, taking eight fighting men with him. In those days, men fought with hand-thrown spears and clubs, with flung stones and sticks sharpened by fire and weighted, but they did not close in the battle clash. So when Idalvar saw the battle blade of Herthu, he wondered, and it passed his understanding. But when he saw Herthu close on the battle line and the foemen fall before him, he was amazed. No man about the king could understand the making of such weapons, offspring of fire and stone. But Havaris made others, and Herthu became the king's right-hand man and the first hero of the noble race. The king offered Herthu his daughter's hand in marriage, but Herthu declined, saying, The days of my manhood are not yet fulfilled. When the war-filled days had passed, Herthu withdrew to the place where Habarus made the bright battle blade, and already he had taught the mysteries of their making to others, sealing their mouths with magic. But Herthu was less concerned with the weaponry of war than with the mysteries of life and the battles of the spirit beset by mortality. So, while his workmen drew bright blades from the thunderstones, Habarus taught Herthru and his battle brothers, and these were the things they learned from his mouth. Beyond God, there is an absolute which no man should try to understand, for it exists and has always existed in a state beyond man's finite comprehension. It is from this absolute that God, the ultimate in all perfections, was engendered. To create, God first visualized in thought. Then he produced an outflowing wave of power, which, in a manner of speaking, solidified what might be called building stones. The outflowing power also produced the celestial hymn, which brought the building stones together in harmonious forms. So it is truly said that all creation is the harp of God, and it responds to his song and manipulations. It is an everlasting unfoldment. The voice of God can also be heard in the voice of his beautiful daughter, who endows all growing things with life and beauty. There is a divine purpose in creation, which may be known only to a few. This knowledge is the key to all unanswered questions. Acquiring it is like the drawing back of heavy curtains, which have kept a room in gloomy half-light, so all things suddenly become clear and distinct. He who gains this knowledge knows the grand secret, the answer to the riddle of the ages, and knows beyond a shadow of a doubt. This divine purpose and the divine secret concerning it is called Gwenkelva. Apart from Gwenkelva, God gains nothing from his creation, except that as a being possessing infinite love and goodness, he must have something to receive the gift of love and respond to it. Even among mortal beings, 
who is there that could find satisfactory fulfillment in self-love. Also, he needed something wherewith he could contrast himself, some medium wherein he could perform, and this is creation. Creation is also for mortals, the school of life, the training ground for godhood. There are three circles of reality, three realms, three stages of existence. They are heaven, where perfection visualized on earth may be realized and desires and ideals materialized, where hard striven for aspirations are attained. It is the place where all the properly developed spiritual potential latent in man reaches maturity and fulfillment. Earth, the place of training, development and preparation, the testing ground, the battlefield, where men discover their true natures when confronted by life's challenges, contests, and contentions, where competition and controversy are the rule. It is here that aims and objectives are conceived and thought out for realization later in the proper place. It is a starting point, the beginning of the journey. It is here that the proper road must wisely be chosen. Then there is the realm of the misty horizon, the intermediate place, the place of spirits, where those above can commune with those below and where free spirits wander within their limitations. These things, which Habaris taught in those far-off days, have been rewritten in transmission to accord with our understanding, but it is unwise to voice them in these troublesome days when words become snares to entrap the unwary. Now, Idalvar desire to learn the secret of the bright blade engendering thunderstones, but no man who came with Habaris or labored for him would disclose any part of it, and the king was afraid to put them to the test. So, having thought the matter out, the king sent for his daughters and told them what he expected them to do, for he had devised a plan to learn the secret. Then he sent an invitation to Herthu and Habaris. When they arrived at the king's encampment, they found a great gathering in their honor, and the king's daughters favorably inclined towards them. One smiling upon Herthu, and the other upon Habaris, who is at the age of hoary-headedness. Though, at first, Habaris was indifferent and wearied her, the king's daughter pandered to him, encouraging even his follies, setting out to charm him with her wit and beauty. It was no great length of time before her womanly wiles ensnared the heart of Habaris, and though he was almost ripe for the surrender of secrets, the damsel's efforts had taxed her, and the game became tiresome. So there came an evening when she could not endure his company. In the mists of the merrymaking, when the ale bowls had made many rounds, 
and the sound of song and story was at its height, she slipped away with a young battleman who attended upon her father. Many who sat among the benches saw this and whispered to one another, nodding knowingly in the direction of Habaris, who was not unaware, though he appeared to have drunk to his capacity. Habaris had learned to love the young woman, so he was sorely heart-smitten, but within himself he knew the tree of winter love bears only winter's fruits. Yet he made excuses to himself for her, thinking, perhaps, it was just some girlishness with no more weight than a floating feather, nothing of serious import. For it was true the merrymaking was better suited to the natures of men than the natures of women. Maybe, he thought, it is just an innocent indiscretion. So when the day came to its fullness, and those who had made merry went heavily about their tasks, Habaris approached the king and asked for his daughter's hand in marriage. He said, Your daughter Clara has delighted me with her winsome ways. She has charmed me with her gaiety and beauty. She has displayed much pleasure in my company. Surely I have not misread the signs. The king was not overpleased, for though he greatly desired to know the secret of the bright blade, he had not intended giving his daughter's hand to a Habaris, but neither did he wish to offend him. Therefore he was wary in his reply, saying, It is the custom for any suitor for a high-born woman's hand to be himself high-born and worthily battle-blooded. Yet such is my affection for you that I would not let even the custom become a bar to this marriage, and you may be a battle-blooded man among your own people. But let us not enter lightly into this thing, for the girl is still young, and it would be well if you established yourself favorably with her. She will be a worthy wife indeed, for she is one who is ever ready to learn, one with an inquiring mind. Nothing gives her greater pleasure than the acquisition of knowledge. So the matter was left. Now, some days later, Idalvar, in his retinue, accompanied by Herthu and Habaris, went to the gathering place for folk feasts. Some five days' journey away, people were accustomed to meeting here every thirteen moons to celebrate the season of fruitfulness, many coming a great distance. Beside the gathering place was the compound of a far-framed seer and warlock called Gwydon who, in the fullness of the moon on the third night, would prophesy events for the forthcoming year. Idalvar and those with him presented their gifts and took their places before the compound. Presently, Gwydon came out cloaked in the skins of wild dogs, with a horned crown and a skull-headed staff. He seated himself before a small fire, into which he threw prescriptions making a cloud of smoke, which completely enveloped them. When this had drifted away, he seemed to be asleep, but after a while he lifted his head, then, raising himself up, he started to prophesy. He talked a while of small matters, then told of dangers to the people through enemies 
who would bear down from the Northlands. He prophesied a great bloodletting, telling people they would be saved by a great war leader, a king knowing the secret of the bright blade, himself a war wielder of one. He exhorted the people to bestir themselves and prepare, wasting no time in finding their leader. No man among the people knew the mysteries of the bright blade except Habaris, but he was not a man of battle, and Herthu was not high-born among them. So, though they talked long, they talked in tangles, failing to resolve the issue. It was then decided each should go his own way, but they should meet at the same place again at the next full moon, when Gwydon would be able to help with their decision. When Idalvar returned to his encampment, he was no longer hesitant about the marriage of his daughter, ordering that it should take place forthwith. But he stipulated that Habaris must initiate him and his sons into the mysteries of the Bright Blade immediately. This being agreed, arrangements for the marriage were put in hand. Habaris and Clara were married, and Idalvar and his sons partially initiated into the mysteries of the Bright Blade, for the king was told it would take some time for the initiation to be completed. So when they next went to the meeting place, Idalvar was proclaimed the war leader, with his sons to follow according to their ages, should he fall in battle. But Habaris had spoken to Gwydon in secret, and matters were so arranged that should the sons of Idalvar fall, then Herthu would become the battle chief. The king and those with him returned to their home compound, where they prepare battlemen, but Herthu was to go back to the gathering place and there train fighting men in the battle tactics which brought them clashing into the foe. Now, on their wedding night, when they had retired to their bower, Clara burst into tears and fell weeping with her head on the knees of Habaris, confessing she was not a virgin and had deceived him, begging his forgiveness. Habaris raised her up and said, Even the wisest of men becomes a fool when his heart blinds him to reason. The older the fool, the bigger the fool. He did not question her regarding love, for he knew she could not love and deceive him. She had given her heart, and with it, her virginity to another. Yet, he made an excuse for her to himself, thinking that she had not willfully deceived him, but had acted out of duty to her father. Also, truly loving someone and wishing to demonstrate that love, she necessarily had to sacrifice that happiness and content. The self-respect of her husband-to-be the choice had to be hers to make. It is ever so. Habaris asked if her father had known how things were. She said, he suspected, for am I not his daughter? Thus, Habaris found himself tied to an unloving wife, for he chose to disregard the custom of the people. He wondered, was she also to be an undutiful and unfaithful one? A woman reserves herself for her husband, or she does not. According to her marriage criterion, 
a woman reserved for marriage is one unlikely to be unfaithful. A woman easily come by before marriage is no less attainable afterwards. For if she says love is the criterion, then she measures by something unstandardized, which may be figuratively vary from one inch to a mile. A man declaring his love may have seduction in mind or a lifetime of protective devotion. The marriage proposal determines the difference and establishes the intent. After the marriage, the king showed little concern for Habaris, for he kept Clara's young battleman in his retinue when he should have dispatched him elsewhere. Nor did Clara maintain the restraint and decorum which dignifies wifehood, except in their outward manifestations, which is no more than a deceptive crust disguising the polluted love beneath. Thus, Habaris bore the shame of belittlement in the eyes of men, for Clara was furtively unfaithful. Habaris visited Herthu and, on his return, told the king that he and his sons would now receive their final initiation. So, having made preparations, they set off, accompanied by Clara, to the place of the Thunderstones, this being a deeply cleft mountain wherein there was a large cavern from which flowed a river. Entering the cave, Habaris told those with him to bide where they were, for only Idalvar, his sons, and Clara were to accompany him into the place of initiation. A small cave entered through a long, narrow passage, closed off by a heavy door, and lit by a fire already prepared, a fire which burnt tardily with a blue flame. When a length of time had passed, those who waited without grew uneasy, but it was long before they approached the door, and when they did, their throats were seized, so they were affrighted and fled, and one among them died. Then, those who knew the mysteries of the Thunderstones came and cleared the way, and all within the cave were found dead. Habaris did what had to be done, for though it is well for men to conform to the laws of men, there is a super law by which men who are men should live, and which sometimes decrees that they must die. Herthu married the daughter of Idalvar, and they had a son who died in his seventh year. Idalvar's daughter died in childbirth. The invaders came and were defeated with a great slaughtering, and Herthu became the first king over all the people of Crocasus. Chapter 8 Gwynava Maeva, one-time wife of Datum, found refuge among people of Ardis, where she gave birth to Gwynava, the cuckoo child. But as the child grew, it was seen that she had red hair, though all she knew there were fair-haired and dark-haired people. None had ever seen anyone with red hair. Also, strange maladies had manifested in artists, for which the strangers were blamed. Therefore, because of these things, Maeva and her child 
were driven out. They came to a pool near the border of Crocasus and built a habitation of reeds, living there for many years. However, Maeva was killed by a wild beast, and Gwyneva was left alone, but she learned much from familiars who came to her, and so she became a sorceress. Time went by, and the half-folk called Yoslings began to gather around her habitation, and they thought she was a goddess and worshipped her. As her fame spread, word came to Herthu concerning the strange woman, so he sent men to find out about her and report. Gwynneva knew about Herthu, but he did not know who she was or that any child of Maeva lived. When Herthu heard the report, he was intrigued and sent men to escort her to him, and she came at his request. They brought her into his presence wearing a cloak of feathers and a garment of doeskin, her hair unbraided like that of other women, falling outside the cloak almost to her knees. He was amazed at the cascade of red hair, and his heart was stirred by her beauty. Herthu gave Gwyneva a bower and attendance, but she preferred to be attained by Yoslings, whom the people about Herthu despised. They gossiped about the strange woman, for it was seen that Yosling men freely entered her bower, yet her bearing was modest and maidenly, the Yoslings showing her every form of respect. It was the season of fruitfulness, and when Herthu went to the gathering place, he took Gwyneva with him, but the Yoslings could not be taken there, so they remained behind, but the people removed them. When they arrived at the gathering place, and Gwyden saw Gwyneva, he was startled, for he had seen such a woman in the darkened waters. But he welcomed her, and was surprised at her wisdom and skill at sorcery. When the time came for Gwyden to prophesy, and all who came to hear him were gathered about, they became apprehensive, for his coming forth was delayed, and the moon began to disappear, eaten away by the blackness of the night. Then, when they started to jostle and flee, there was a great shout, and Gwyden appeared. As he did, a great fire sprang up on either side of him. The people remained, for each was rooted to the place where he stood. Gwyden spoke at length, telling them that the night sky sign heralded a new era, that as the moon grew again in brightness, so should their race wax strong and viral spreading wide across the face of the earth, driving lesser races before them, that a son of Herthu would lead their sons out of Crocasus, and his sons and their sons would continue westwardly towards Hesperus, meaning land of spirits, that there they would meet their final destiny. He told them that there would be a great bloodletting when brother would fight with brother and father with son, but that this would be the planting of the centropole around which the framework for the structure of their race would be woven. He said, I shall go before the vanguard in spirit. Later, 
her through Asquidan to cast the omen sticks and read the ashes as he wished to know things concerning Gwynneva. This Gwyden did, telling him that she was his fate mate, one destined to be his wife, that she was indeed a true maiden, and he would not be forbidden. He said, she acts as she does through innocence and not through brashness. But what Gwyden told Herthu was no more than a grain in the grain sack among all that which he knew and saw. When Herthu returned to his home site, he paid court to Gwynneva and asked her to marry him, and this she consented to do after one year. The people, hearing what was intended, were displeased and murmured against the marriage, saying it was unseemingly for their king to marry a sorceress in one strange in so many ways. Also, there was a custom forbidding the intermingling of blood, but there was no doubt as to what she was, some thinking she was one who could be acceptable. Gwynneva was not the bloodkin of Herthu, so as the marriage would not be incestuous, Gwynneva decided she would say nothing of their relationship, for she was in love with him, and love is ever ready to make excuses. Yet, despite her knowledge and wisdom, her heart was full of fears because of her background, but she displayed none of her anxieties. She did not feel at ease among the people, but never asked that the Yoslings be allowed back. She tried to become acceptable by ministering to the sick with simples and remedies, but the more she cured and healed, the more people feared her, and fearing they shunned her, except they were in dire need of her help. However, Herthu remained firm in his resolve to marry, though many advised that if he simply took Gwynneva as a concubine or as something less than a wife, it would be more acceptable. They said, none would object if she were treated as a woman with no standing, mate, but do not marry, for marriage would grant her undue status, and is marriage so necessary? Does a wise man buy the pie, whereof he can freely eat at any time? Such sayings enraged Herthu, for he knew Gwynneva to be a woman reserved for marriage, and this he tried to tell the people, but they laughed saying, She has bewitched you, put her to the test. But he replied, This is unworthy, for it displays doubt and distrust. A virgin is a virgin, whether named so by horn or wand, and remains so, whatever the conjectures of carnal-minded men who are far more familiar with women of less repute. Yet, whether the marriage bar applied was still a thing of doubt in the minds of many, for none knew the lineage of Gwynneva, nor did she enlighten anyone, though it was customary to recite this at betrothal. But Herthu and Gwynneva remained unbethrothed, though the forthcoming marriage was made known. Now the nephews and kin of Idalvar nurtured seeds of discord among the people, and because it was a time of peace when the skills of a war chief were not needed, 
many heeded their words. So it developed that there were those for Herthu and those against him. Then Herthu said to the people, Let this not be something to cut people apart, but something which can be decided at the next folk feast. The seed sowing time had passed, but it was not yet harvest tide, and the young men held spear throwing contests and tested each other in many manly skills. At such times, seated on a platform against the palisade, Herthu gave judgment and awarded merits. Inside the palisade was a walkway and places from which great stones could be hurled, and from one such place came a murderous weapon which cut down through Herthu's head to pierce the shoulder of his shield arm, striking him to the ground. Immediately, there was a great tumult and confusion. Fighting broke out and men died, but Herthu was carried to safety in the bower of Gwynava. There, he was protected by his retainers, but within the palisade, all was taken over by those hostile to Herthu. Before the cowardly blow, those for Herthu had been more numerous and powerful, but after he was so sorely wounded, they were less, and of these, many were inclined to waver, for such is nature of man. But to contrast with the frail reeds who wavered, those who remained loyal were resolute, for this too is the nature of man. Now, when Gwynava and the wise men attended to Herthu, they saw that while the shield arm had been injured, it was not unfeeling, for it grasped the hand of Gwynava, but this sword arm could not do, though it was uninjured. Therefore, they knew the slaughter-bent weapon had been charmed, and no woman could remove such enchantment, nor could the wise men, for they were unblooded. In the days that followed, the enchantment caused demons to enter through the wound and take up their abode. So Herthu was tormented, and his body racked before subsiding into the quietness which precedes death. The demons had abused Gwynava, calling her foul names, and cried out in loud voices against people, so that they should abandon their king. The place where Herthu lay was near the lakeside, and in the lake was an island called Inscris, meaning Isle of the Dead, where those about to die were taken, as well as the dead, before being consigned to the waters. For the people believed those given into the lake went straight into awareness in the other world, while anyone buried on land was only half aware upon arrival and remained half awake and half asleep for many years. So, those loyal to Herthu carried him down to the boats and accompanied him and Gwynava to the isle, and they were not molested, for none interfered with those mourning the dead. On the isle were priests and nine holy maidens who attended to the rites while other women ministered to the newly dead. But Herthu was not dead, though halfway across the threshold. When Herthu arrived, he was placed in the hospice house, where Gwynava attended to him. Gwyden opened Herthu's skull 
where it had been cleft and let out the demon which had taken up habitation there, and he brewed powerful potions which removed the enchantment. When after many days he departed, Herthu was no longer at the door of death, though weak and in many ways like a baby. While Herthu lay so sorely stricken, the kinsfolk of Idalvar were disputing among themselves, and this led to fighting and battles. But none came near the isle to harm Herthu, because it was a sacred place and gave him sanctuary. When it came to the time of the folk feast, there was a great battle at the gathering place, and Gwydon was slain. There came a day when Herthu, though still not whole, could move about, and then he and Gwynneva departed with those who remained with them. They were married before leaving their isle of sanctuary. They fled to a place afar off, where as the years went by, Herthu became whole again, and Gwynneva gave birth to sons and daughters. It was a good place, fertile and well-watered, and so they prospered. But there came a time of drought, when the waters dried up and their flocks died. So Herthu sent men to Crocasus, and these came back saying that there too the land was stricken and the people distressed. He also sent others to the west, and they returned, saying that there the land was not stricken, but the people would not accept them except with spears. Herthu then sent men back to Crocasus to tell the people there of the plenty which lay to the west, and they came back with a war band led by Ithalus, and many people followed. Herthu could no longer bear weapons, and his sons were as yet young and unblooded. Therefore he gave his two sons, who were of sufficient age, into the keeping of Ithalus, so they might learn the art of war, and they followed him loyally, becoming men of valor in the conflict which ensued. Many people left Crocasus and settled in the land lying to the west, and Herthu and Gwynneva also settled there. Time passed, and Herthu became renowned for his wisdom, and Ithilus, king of Arania, honored him with lands and servants. Herthu's two sons, who had followed the king and were twins, married the king's two eldest daughters, who were also twins. This caused problems for the king, though having three wives was sonless. Therefore, the twin sons of Herthu became his heirs. The king was perplexed, for the two men could not rule together, and both were of equal standing in his eyes. Yet, it was the king's duty to nominate his heir and proclaim him to the people, so there should be no division after his death. Therefore, Ithilus consulted Herthu as to how the judgment should be made, and Herthu said, Let fate decree who shall be king. In Arania, the people gathered four times a year for the folk feasts. At such times, it was customary for new laws to be proclaimed, judgments given, and all contentious issues settled, 
So before the next folk feast, Herthu prepared a man-made stone from sand, clay, and other things. And while it was still soft, he set the hilt of his great sword, Dislana, the bitter biter, into it. And when the stone was hardened, Dislana was fast. The sword-implanted stone was then set down near the place where the king gave judgment. Around it was drawn a wide circle, bisected across. On the day when the people first assembled to hear his words, Ithilus told them of his perplexity over the problem concerning the twin sons of Herthu and his daughters. He said, So the people are not divided, and the kingdom rent by strife. It is well this matter be settled now. Therefore, I am setting a fair test, involving no men other than these two, whom I hold equally dear. Whichsoever of them shall remove their father's great weapon from this stone, so he frees it and grasps the hilt, shall become my lawful heir, with the other being him as a younger brother. They will each try in turn during the duration of the fall of a feather. The first trier being he who casts his bracelet over the blade. Then each of Herthu's sons was placed in a spot where the bisecting line joined the circle. So they stood opposite each other and each had three bracelets. They threw until one encircled the blade with his bracelet. Then. This one tried to withdraw the weapon with his hand, but could not, because of the sharpness. The other tried by placing his two palms on each side of the blade, then pressing them together while lifting, but he could not move it either. The first one tried again, copying what had just been done more powerfully, so the stone almost lifted off the ground but the sword did not leave the stone. Then the other approached the stone, but this time he put his hands under the edges of the stone so he could lift it in his arms, and he dashed it down over a rock which was nearby, so it broke asunder. He then picked Dislana up by the hilt and brandished it over his head. The people acclaimed him, while his brother grasped his arms in congratulations. Thus, by wisdom, was the problem overcome. The End of the Book of Creation Alright, that was the Cobrin Bible, the last chapters of the Book of Creation. I want to thank you all so much, if you made it this far, for coming along with me on this journey, going deep, into the abyss and i want to know what you all think so reach out you can email me the brave new world order podcast at gmail.com follow me on x at brave nwo podcast i would really love to hear from all of you if you're enjoying the podcast if you're enjoying the cobran bible so reach out you could also respond to the q a on spotify I think that helps the algorithm. You can leave reviews. You can share this with your friends, your family. Help the Brave New World Order podcast. And I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. And if you want to help support the show as well, there are a couple links 
And I really, really am grateful for each and every one of you that helps out, that shares the podcast, that reaches out, that leaves a review, and anybody just coming along with me on this journey. Much more to come. You'll be hearing from me, Brandon St. One, very soon. But in the meantime, stay positive, question everything, think for yourself. Much love, everybody. Peace.